0: You remember uh, biology class, probably ninth grade, tenth grade, somewhere right around there, depending on what type of school you went to when you took it. And biology class is usually, I think, probably everybody's favorite for the first half of it. The first half of biology is so interesting as you learn about all the things that God has made and how they work. I mean, you learn amazing things like uh, birds don't have stomachs and they have hollow bones. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, creatures that don't have stomachs, that's why they poop all the time on your car. <laughs> and you learn about all the various systems of how the human body works and how God has designed life to operate. You remember, probably, I guess, in that class, maybe it wasn't, but where you, you had to do some sort of model of the cell, you know, where you took the pipe cleaners and tried to make all the different things and it really looked like a mess, but it helped, I guess. But I say the first half of biology is the most fun because there's a significant moment that happens usually somewhere about halfway or two-thirds of the way through the course. If you're clever, you've already figured out what it is. It's the moment where you're standing next to some other poor middle schooler or high schooler when they drop some very large, very room temperature, very formaldehyde-smelling critter on top of the desk in front of you and you have to cut it open. Now, if you grew up on a farm, that was nothing for you. I grew up in the suburbs. And I remember distinctly when the frog hit my desk. One, I had never seen a frog that big in my entire life. Uh, And I immediately realized I would be doing this entire thing by myself because the girl next to me spent the next hour and a half vomiting in the trash can. (laughs) And you remember that moment in class. Because all of the things that you had been studying in the past suddenly became real. I mean, your teacher, your teacher had been talking about brains and stomachs and intestines and muscles and bones and cool and all. But now I have to handle brains and muscles and skins and intestines and bones. Maybe you got the fetal pig. Maybe that was your first one. Whoa, if it was. It's where it becomes tangible. You can smell it. I guess if you do it wrongly, you might actually taste it if you're messy. You certainly feel it. You definitely hear it. It's all of the senses working to take learning and to make it tangible and real before you. In many ways, the book of Proverbs, I guess, kind of functions as that kind of similar type of science experiment, where God has been talking to his people about wisdom and and putting it, trying to, in so much as he can, putting it into tangible, feeling, experiential-oriented things so that we get it. What does wisdom look like? What does wisdom smell like? What does wisdom feel like? What is wisdom? And here in 28, he he actually is going to take it and narrow it a little bit more. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time as a pastor, I heard somebody say, Pastor, I I so badly want to do the right thing. If, If only I knew what the right thing was. I'd do it. Or if if only I knew what the wise thing to do was, I'd do it. I'm not afraid. <laughs> I'm just a bit ignorant. I just don't know the right path to choose, but I would choose it if I could. And the book of Proverbs is the giant dead frog that you get to dissect. But chapter 28 focuses a bit more sharply to say for God's children, there's something even bigger that the book of Proverbs is pointing to. You see, it's not just this book that contains wisdom for the children of God, and I'm making that explicitly clear for the children of God, but that it's highlighting here in chapter 28 It's not just the book of Proverbs, but that wisdom is explained in our relationship to the law. I mean, this is, I guess, the way the entire book has been building. It started out with that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools, despise, discipline and instruction. (laughs) It's built on that over and over again of what does wisdom look like? It looks like a person who listens to the Lord, who listens to His commands, who listens to what He says. The fool is the one who listens to himself or to herself. The fool is the one who listens to his neighbor or her neighbor. The fool is the one who listens to his culture or her culture. But the wise is the one who listens to his maker or her maker, his or her redeemer, to their God. And 28, again, redirects that even more clearly to say, how is it that we listen to our God? Where is it that wisdom is to be found? Where is it where it's put into clear-cut, understandable illustrations? If I am a child of God, how does he want me to live? What am I supposed to do? Why am I here on this planet? Why do I have days left? Why am I not in heaven already? Well, the law. It's introduced in verse 4. It's, we're going to look at a number of different verses. But verse 4, is it, it kind of frames out the generic picture here. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked. It's presented in terms of kind of binary illustration. You either love the law or you love wickedness. And those who keep the law strive against wickedness. They strive against the fool. They strive against the evil. Again, verse 7 intensifies this, kind of puts it into very clear and graphic and gripping illustration. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Here you can kind of get the mental picture of uh, the American elite, the extremely wealthy, and how you watch their children grow up in the public eye. Some of those families, they have kids that have very clever minds, very clever behavior sets, and they compose themselves and hold themselves very, very well. But then other families, you see them and they have the kid that they kind of (laughs) hide. The one who's constantly going in or out of rehab or should be going in and out of rehab. The one who's constantly living the partying lifestyle, who's utilizing all of their resources to Fellowship with, and we're going to say gluttons here, not just those gluttons of food, but gluttons of pleasure. Constantly indulging the flesh, indulging their desires, indulging their life. The law is the thing that marks the wise son. Verse 9 is. I mean, honestly, if you're not really paying attention when you're reading the Proverbs, or they kind of blend together. Verse 9 should be a bit of like a little slap in the face. It should be the cold water, the, whoa, wow, I wasn't paying attention, but I'm back in now. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Wow! I mean, even his prayer, and you think about why even his prayer, because prayer is that most holy act where uh, the child of God submits himself to inquire of the Lord, to pray to the Lord, to express his joys, his thanksgivings, or her sorrows and needs. But for those that are plugged their ears to God's law, who refuse to even hear what he's explaining about the way in which God's children should live, even the prayer is an abomination. And this is an an interesting kind of explanation of the relationship that God has with his law. Because I would suggest, as Americans, most of us, we hate the idea of law. Just in general. I mean, South Carolina, thank you. This is what we do. We want as few laws as possible. And even those I may or may not follow. We live in a culture where our government makes all kinds of laws and increasingly ridiculous ones. We live in a culture where law is so sometimes negatively viewed. I mean, again, think about just talking with friends and neighbors or other young families, young parents, to think about the the rules they have for their children and how they view those rules. (laughs) Do you have family laws? And is that a good thing? You see, we've turned away as a culture from the idea of order and law and law being a good thing and moved toward this antinomian anarchist sort of law is bad. And it's unfortunately infiltrated our faith and it's tainted how our relationship with the Lord is structured. You see, for God's children, his law is the guidepost is the the pathway to good and holy and righteous and obedient living framed the way it is in proverbs it's the way to good living you want to have a joyful life keep the law you want to have a blessed life keep the law you want to have a, a prosperous life keep the law now, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be wealthy or loaded. It doesn't mean that everybody's you know, going to be healthy and not have sickness that creeps into the family. That doesn't mean that the Lord won't take our spouses away early or our children away early. It means that life is better when we follow the instruction manual. And that can only be done if we are God's child. The contrast is presented in 10, 11, and 26. 26. Whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will receive his own punishment upon his head. Eleven, the the, I'm sorry, a rich man is wise in his own eyes. But a poor man who has understanding will find him out, he'll be ratted out. Twenty-six, whoever trusts his own mind is a fool. That's the most kind of shocking of them all, I think. I mean, I've i joked about this before, but when everybody takes their own spiritual gift tests, which I love using, everybody says they have the gift of discernment because everybody trusts their own mind. <laughs> and it's interesting that the Lord, when he's talking about wisdom, says the last thing you can trust is your own mind. The thing you should start with is the law. If you need something dependable, something you can rest on, something that is safe and unmoving, that is unyielding and true. This is the law. It's God's revealed law. It is His help for His saints. And you think about, well, okay, why does that make a difference in the life of a believer? I mean, how does that make a difference? Why why is it that life is better when God's children obey His commands? Well, and there's a multitude of reasons, and they're all throughout the book. This one's particularly, the way that this chapter addresses it, is it highlights the benefit of constancy. You see, when we keep the law as God's children faithfully keep the law, it creates a, a personality, a mentality, a character of constancy and faithfulness. Look at verse 6. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Who has the more enjoyable life, the better life? The one who's constant in his integrity, the one who is living a life with a trajectory that is oriented towards obedience. Certainly better than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. He has his wealth, but his life is miserable again if you don't believe passages like this please go read biographies read a biography of Michael Jackson I'm not joking read a biography of Michael Jackson I mean find the right one so that you don't read the wrong one, but... I mean you realize he owned the entire Beatles catalog he got bored one afternoon so he bought the Beatles he owned all of his own music and the Beatles that's shocking And by his own admission, he was miserable every day of his life. I mean, go pick any of them. I mean, any of the really uber wealthy and elite. It's fantastic to watch what happened in the Rockefeller family. I mean, even in this area, Biltmore House. The trajectory of obedience produces a far more enjoyable and delightful life for the people of God, and it's only for the people of God. 18 and 20 highlight this again. Similarly, those who walk in integrity will be delivered. Those crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. Uh, 20 even goes further. A faithful man will abound in blessings. Whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. That idea of the steady, one step after another sort of obedience And I think this actually maybe is probably the part that might even be a greater sort of challenge for the American mindset is we love to think of the magic pill sort of answers. We love for that one specific exercise that will make us entirely physically fit. We long for the the one dietary decision that will suddenly make all of the weight go away and I get to eat everything I want to eat. We long for that one particular trick that will help us sleep so that we'll feel all kinds of better. We long for that one specific vacation activity that will take away all of our stress. We long for the magic pill that makes everything better. And the problem is that that's actually crept into our Christianity as well. We long for the one spiritual activity that will make us whole. We, we long for the one specific thing we can do that will make all of our spiritual problems go away. We long for the one little bit that will keep us out of suffering. And it's interesting, the pattern that's presented in the scripture is that of a long and faithful obedience in the same direction. It's a long, slow, and steady walk. It's one step after another of obedience in the same direction. This is actually, I think, an area probably where we all need to spend some time contemplating and repenting. That we want this instantaneous maturity. We want this instantaneous godliness. We want this instantaneous readiness for heaven. Instead of thinking God's design is for his word to have root over a season. And most often a season of suffering in the same direction. This chapter highlights the contrast of kind of two specific ways in which that works out. One with rulers. And you could look in verses 2, 3, 5, 15, and 16 as to the consequences of a nation that's governed this way versus a nation that's not. And it's interesting because as a nation is governed with this kind of fidelity, this faithfulness to the law of God, what happens is blessing creeps out everywhere. Verse 5, evil men don't understand justice. Godly men and women do. Well, as, as you have evil rulers, guess what? Justice will be absent. Godliness is the answer. It's been interesting. Our nation over the last several years has been having a, a fairly long-running conversation about justice as a nation. God's Word tells us where justice is found. It tells us how to get it. Holiness Obedience to the Lord. It's not going to be found through legislation. It really won't. Fifteen and sixteen and like a roaring lion or a charging bear. You want to know about that? Ask Ryan, he'll have a story for you after worship. <laughs> like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. Not a good thing. I even go so far as to say. These benefits, when the church does them, when God's saints uh, actively obey his law, the benefits don't just reside solely within the church, but they percolate out out even into the culture. Have you wondered why democracy has only really worked in Christian or post-Christian countries? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's really, really only worked well in Christian or post-Christian countries in the modern world. Because those are the only worldviews strong enough to hold it. To hold it together. To make it function. Because the benefits of the law being worked out as righteousness is a gift from God versus the wicked ruler. It's also illustrated in the relationship with money. We could go 8 verses eight, twenty two, twenty four, twenty five, twenty seven, 24, 25, 27, kind of running again through. Oh, the contrast being... If you are in love with God and his law, it will reorient your relationship with money. You won't be, verse 20, whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Hmm. Maybe that's been your story, that magic pill again. If I, if I only won the lottery, all of my problems would go away. i give you a hint. Playing the lottery, you have the same odds as winning as if you don't play it. <laughs> zero That's but it's the same idea of letting money govern us and dominate us instead of working to obey the law of the Lord the chapter ends with a portrait of generosity of sharing of kindness and how the Lord blesses that God's law is part of the mechanism for accomplishing wisdom in the saints I'll put it this way maybe a bit differently you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do you don't know the best course of action the first place you need to look is the law of God start with the Ten Commandments then from there go to the other commandments that you know throughout the scriptures that's a great starting place in fact you'll never go wrong that way It may not provide an easy and quick answer. Should you sell your house or not? Why? That's a bit more complicated, but it's a great starting place for the children of God because God has promised to use his law for his saints. Now, realistically, if we're going to do this with God's law, if this is going to be our our signpost on how to live, if this is going to be the little reflectors in the center of a foggy road, if this is going to be the, the yellow lines that help us figure out where we're headed, there is actually a specific relationship that God's people do have to have with the Word, and it's laid out in verses 23 and 13. We're going to look at 23 first. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. You see, the thing is, is if we're going to have a relationship with the law of God, it will by definition be a confrontational relationship. The the pattern that's set out here in this chapter is the one who listens to his own mind versus the one who is listening to another's mind, to God's mind. So if we're going to have a relationship with the Lord, it is going to be one of conflict and rebuke, and we will be the recipients, not the givers. God's law will tell us how we have to change. And sometimes it's not going to be convenient. The tithe, not always convenient, always commanded. The meeting together of the the saints coming to corporate worship, not always convenient, always commanded. Gentleness towards one another, no matter what is happening in your life. Not always convenient, always commanded. Forgiveness, rarely ever convenient. Commanded for the saints. You see, if we're going to have this sort of relationship with the law, we we don't measure up to it. That's why we look to it. Our lives don't already match it. That's why it's a guidepost to us. So it's going to be one of confrontation, one of rebuke, one where our brothers and sisters will sit down with us and say, hey, brother or sister in Christ, I love you, but you're being a bonehead because the Bible says this and you're doing that. And so verse 13 is that final solution. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You see, if we're going to have a life that is built around the law of God, it's going to be confrontational to us. We're going to have friends, brothers and sisters, church members that actually have to rebuke us because we don't measure up. And the answer, the choice is really twofold. You can either try to hide it, or you can own it and confess it. And we've already seen the, the rich man who tries to hide his sin, it's uncovered by even the poor man. It's found out, it's shown forth, it's nothing that's going to be hidden will stay hidden. So instead God's children are those that are going to, by the working of the spirit within them, redeeming work of the Lord Christ, be a people that will be filled with confession. Confession. confesses his sins, confesses his shortcomings, confesses his foolishness and forsakes it and turns from it. And this is, I would say, probably the part of the sermon that's maybe the the most delicate for us because, again, if there's anything in America we don't like, it's, I mean, rules certainly fall in that category. Being told how I should spend my money certainly falls in that category. Uh, Being told who should govern me or how they should govern me certainly falls in that category But telling me that I have to confess and change. That I have to repent and do differently. (laughs) I mean, you want to make someone really have to wrestle through who they are and how they behave and what your relationship with them is. Have that sort of conversation. And to see what confession looks like. Will we turn from our sins? Will we turn to Christ? Now again, there's going to be tensions with this and there's going to be difficulties with this. And this is where I started out with the caveat from the very beginning. This is really only for God's children. Because this relationship with the law is a positive relationship. It's one that's defined in a life-giving nature. And the only way that can happen is if the Spirit of God is already inside you. That God is empowering you. You know, again, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can keep the law. I can live in accordance with the scriptures because God has given me his spirit and I am able to do so, not in my own merit, not in my own ability, not in my own strength, but in Christ. And so I would give a challenge. There's some of you in here that are not even trying, you just quit. I'm just doing the best I can. I'm not even paying attention to what God has said anymore. If that's you, you need to repent and forsake your ways. There are some in the room that are genuinely attempting to obey the law of God out of a love for the Lord, and it's wearying. And I might suggest most likely in that case, you're probably doing it in your own strength, which is not enough. I mean, you're all strong people, but nowhere near as strong as the Holy Spirit and again, confess your sin, forsake it. Turn from your own self-efforts and turn to the Spirit of God that He would energize your efforts to be transformed. And there's others in the room that are, I think, probably feel like they're doing a good job here. And I would say, great, glory, hallelujah. Don't grow weary of doing good. Also, don't go proud. And don't go comfortable with the baseline being drawn here. Don't set low standards. May it be that we as God's saints, God's church, live a life that is directed and obedient to the word of God. That we will be filled with with wisdom and blessing. Because again, as we've seen, what happens when we have this kind of wisdom, this relationship with the law, this obedience, blessing is poured out on the saints. You know how much easier evangelism is? (laughs) When we feel actively the blessing of God. May it be that this church, this tiny portion of God's universal, this, this world church, may we be actively committed to wisdom and then in doing so, actively committed to evangelism. Let's seek the Lord. Oh God, we do confess our sins. We confess that so often we trust our own minds. We trust our own hearts as opposed to trusting your word, trusting your spirit. Oh, Lord, please forgive us. Give us love for your law, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.